Good morning. Thank you for joining this webinar titled Introduction to the GMP Standard for OTC Drug Products. There appears to be substantial interest and curiosity in this standard, so I appreciate people taking time of their day to join. Over the course of 30 minutes, I will cover a body of work that's really taken approximately three years to develop, so it's quite a tall order for this webinar. My name is Jim Morris. I'm with NSF International. I've been with the pharmaceutical industry in the pharmaceutical industry for approximately 30 years. I've had roles in quality and manufacturing in a number of different companies, and I've now been with NSF for approximately 10 years. I lead the acceptance certification program for NSF, which was frankly my first introduction to certification and its benefits. And I've been supporting the standard development work in the, specifically in the area of over-the-counter drugs, which is the focus of this webinar. I'd also like to take just a moment and thank and recognize the work of both our certification team, which has been outstanding, uh, the group at NSF, and in addition, a large number of people, stakeholders to this whole process, approximately 50 individuals representing manufacturers, retailers, certification bodies, public health, the FDA particularly, and universities, all involved, all contributing, dedicating their time. So we thank them. This agenda, the agenda for the webinar is to provide a bit of context, background, uh, get into the standard and describe how it's organized, describe the certification process, how it works, and some next steps for both manufacturers and retailers. And there'll be a short Q&A towards the end of this 30-minute uh, slot that we have. So the context, a bit of background for you. Retailers are challenged. They have to ensure that the products that are manufactured are meeting regulatory requirements. In other words, that they conform to GMPs. They're free of adulteration. They're free of potential misbranding. And they have to manage this risk across a range of different product categories. All you need to do is step into your local Walgreens, Walmart, uh, CVS, and you can see and appreciate the broad range of products and the sheer volume that they have to manage. And retailers recognize that the FDA oversight, while good, is insufficient within each category. And what they'll do is they'll conduct audits or contract with third-party providers to conduct audits of the manufacturers of their supply network. And the manufacturers, in turn, are receiving and hosting audits from a number of different retailers, often for the same product type and under the same quality system. The result is that we have essentially a lot of inconsistency in the current state, inconsistency between audits and auditors. The interpretation of the GMP requirements and guidance will vary. And as many of you would appreciate, auditors will go in and focus in those areas where they're most comfortable, and we end up with quite a bit of variability. Retailers ultimately are often unable to review the audit results, at least on a timely basis. And their perception, their feeling, is that GMP audits are not sufficiently mitigating risk, despite their efforts. And at the manufacturer level, what they perceive and what they see is inconsistency between audits and auditors, and ultimately a sense of, of audit fatigue. What transpired back approximately in 2014 is that NSF, as a standards development organization, was approached 
to level set, to even the playing field, if you will, and set a set of standards that would uh, provide guidance in this space. And that's where the concept and the formation of the Global Retailer Manufacturers Association, or I should say Alliance, was formed, the GRMA. The initial roadmap and goals for the GRMA were to assure that there was a single audit scheme and a single set of standards for OTCs, dietary supplements, cosmetics, and med devices, essentially the primary product categories that retailers were concerned about, and that these standards and their associated guidelines would encompass regulatory requirements and it was stated in the CFR. They would include agency and ICH guidelines and industry best practice and ultimately would result in a reduction in audit fatigue by eliminating the need for multiple audits by a single of a single manufacturer. And the benefit would be to achieve greater consistency in auditor qualification, the auditor process, the audit process, and in the communication of audit results. That was the initial roadmap that was laid out for the GRMA. So I'd like to say a few words around the standard development process. This is core to NSF's, NSF's health science mission. Uh, it will uh, consistently involve three groups, industry, the makers, if you will, the manufacturers in this case, the public health, in this case the FDA, and users of the standard uh, or consumers. There must be representation by these, these main groups. And the process, the standard development process against which NSF is accredited by ANSI must be balanced, must be open, must be, um, it must be clear that there's consensus. It must provide for uh, a period of uh, public notice and public comment. And this whole process um, must be respected in the standard development uh, activity, and that's how these standards were arrived at. The work essentially is done at the task group level, and once work is carried to a certain uh, level, in other words, uh, ready for review, it goes to a joint committee. And there's a lot of back and forth to assure that the joint committee is ultimately satisfied. As I mentioned earlier, in this case for OTC uh, manufacturing, uh, good manufacturing practices for the OTC category, there were approximately 50 people off and on during the course of this standard development activity, contributing in different task groups. The process was initiated in 2015. I stepped in in approximately 2017, and the OTC GMP standard 455-4 was published about this time last year. The standards were developed for those that are listed here. For OTC drugs, it's the 455-4. For cosmetics, it's a 455.3. Dietary supplements has an, its own standard. And under medical devices, there was work and discussion around uh, this space, but ultimately we have ISO 1345, which uh, suffices. However, there has been discussion in an abbreviated um, protocol, if you will, for auditors that are uh, auditing very low-risk uh, devices where there are clauses that exist in 1345 that may not pertain to those low-risk devices. So 
So I'd like to describe how each standard is organized. Each section, there are six sections within each standard. There's a general section that covers the purpose and scope. There's a section of normative references and definitions. And then audit requirements, the audit process, and an informative annex that describes how certification bodies are to handle their, their affairs with regard to this standard. And this is to ensure consistency in the application and structure of the GMP requirements and how they're spelled out. Consistency in the audit processes that the CBs undertake so that the certification procedures are essentially common across CBs. What we wanted to assure is that manufacturers would not shop for those CBs that perhaps are a little bit more flexible and lenient, but rather to be a common standard across certification bodies. So I'd like to take a few minutes and describe as part of the structure, three of those elements, the first being audit requirements. The primary headers of the audit requirements section, the good manufacturing practices for OTC drugs, fall under these headings. And these headings are aligned with the major clauses of ISO. And I should just say and explain why this is the case. As a process that's ultimately going to be accredited by ANSI, ANSI is moving and, and uh, encouraging new standard development to be done under an international uh, standard format. And for that reason, ISO 9001 was selected. So the content of the GMP requirements follows the major clauses of ISO 9001. And I'll provide a little bit more detail in just a bit around the, um, the structure of the audit requirements. The other section that's really key is the audit process. And it really goes into a lot of detail around how the audits are to be conducted from audit preparation and planning to execution to reporting. Many of you would probably be curious about reporting and grading and how nonconformances are handled. Nonconformances are rated as, a, as critical major minor, and grading is provided on the basis of an A, B, and C, D grading level, um, which is a function of the number of nonconformances and the severity of those nonconformances. We could spend quite a bit of time on that, but it's probably best to just indicate that the audit process document goes into quite a bit of detail around that grading scheme and, uh, and how it works. So that's, that's your best reference. The third portion, or last portion, I should say, of each standard are some additional elements. And this level sets the certification bodies and assures that there's a process that's required for accreditation around appeals, complaints, confidentiality, for instance. So let's get a little bit deeper into this and see how the GMP portion and the audit requirements are actually structured. Within each standard, there'll be a purpose statement. In this case, you would see, and many of you would recognize that the uh, phrases that are here align very close with, closely with ICHQ-10 pharmaceutical quality systems guidance uh, to achieve OTC drug realization, to uh, assure a state of control, and to facilitate improvement. Those objectives are aligned fully with ICHQ-10. Each standard will have a scope statement, and in this case, the portion that's highlighted shows and indicates that the standard is intended to define a standardized approach for auditing to determine the level of compliance of OTC drug products to 210, 211, 
as well as incorporating additional retailer requirements. That might make some of you a bit nervous as to what are these retailer requirements. Hopefully I can lay those, those concerns in a, in a few slides and, uh, and talk briefly about that. Following the purpose and scope, uh, you get into the detail of what's expected in the standard. And this pyramid structure probably best describes it. There is the regulation, the CFRs, which sits at the top of the pyramid. And then the standard, 455-4, uh, sits in the middle of the pyramid, and that's the document that was developed by the, um, by the task force and the joint committee, along with what's called the ARG, Audit Requirements Guide, and the Audit Requirements Guide provides interpretive guidance to the auditor in how to apply a standard. But frankly, the two documents need to go together, and I'll explain why. So you have the standard and the guideline, and these documents go in hand in hand, and they, be, they must be aligned, and they are aligned with what the uh, expectations are in the regs. So let's drill down to a specific example to see how this is framed up. Using equipment cleaning as the example. In CFR 211, uh, Section 67, there's a section that speaks to equipment and utensils should be cleaned, maintained, and sanitized at appropriate intervals to prevent malfunctions and contamination. And then it goes on and covers other areas around responsibility and methods. There's a short paragraph that goes into 67. Well, the standard that, that uh, sits in 455-4, uh, specifically Section 4.6.20, uh, aligns up with the uh, regulatory requirements, but goes beyond that because if you go to the ARG, it gets down to the point that equipment and parts cleaning procedures shall be validated. And there are some other points, other bullets that are in that section of the ARG. But you can see the, the lineup between the regulation, the standard, and the guidance. Now, why is this important? Well, if we take a look at FDA enforcement, FDA enforcement around .67 in the CFR goes to the level of validation. However, the CFR doesn't specifically call out validation. That's the C in GMPs, the little C in CGMPs. In this case, there is a finding related to an OTC drug, drug manufacturer from earlier this year. In this case, it's a manufacturer of topical over-the-counter drug products. And it's stated by the FDA that the cleaning validation program for manufacturing equipment was in, inadequate, and the firm responded, and the FDA's comment to their response is that they didn't go far enough, and you can read through that and see the extent to which the FDA is expecting that equipment be properly, equipment cleaning be properly validated. So the oversight is there. The CFR doesn't speak to it. However, this standard and this guidance clearly does. Another example, just one other example, to illustrate this. Under investigations, for instance, the CFR in Section 100 states that any deviation from written procedures shall be recorded and justified. And then there are other sections in the CFR, uh, 111, for instance, that covers uninterruptions or interruptions in production for the timeliness of production. There's another section that covers any discrepancies. I think it's Section 192. Uh, discrepancies uh, shall be investigated. So there are a few sections in the regs that cover where investigations are required and where deviations should be appropriately doc documented. Well, the standard speaks to this section in much more detail. 
And as you can see from the highlight, it covers unexpected events, deviations from procedure, nonconformances, complaints, rejections, and recalls. So it goes into further detail in the CFR. And in the ARG, in the guidance portion, it goes beyond that. And it links it to, for instance, in point two, the middle portion, uh, that batch-specific corrective action must be closed prior to batch release. Basic point, but it's spelled out in the guidance. And under point three, for instance, it calls out that there would be a need for customer approval where applicable. For instance, where there may be a quality agreement that warrants that, that requires that. So hopefully you can see the linkage between the regulation, the standard, and the guideline. And you can see that the guideline goes into sufficient detail such that the auditor can be applying uh, current guidance and best practices to assure that appropriate audits are being conducted. Now to address the question of retailer expectations that I mentioned earlier. There are some areas in the standard where retailers specifically highlighted areas that they wanted to see covered. And this is one whereby the uh, quality risk principles are applied to supplier selection. If you read the highlighted portion, supplier selection, evaluation, and monitoring of supplier performance and assuring business continuity. So that's where it's built into the standard. It has to do with supplier selection. How is this actually put into practice in the, in the standard and in the guidance, this topic of business continuity that the retailers put forward? Well, there isn't a specific regulation as it would apply to over-the-counter drugs. For those of you familiar with prescription drugs, under FIDASIA, there is an obligation to report uh, risk of shortage. But no such thing under for OTC drug products. So it's been built into the standard. And in this case, the example that I'm putting forward is in 4.6.2 of the standard that speaks to supplier performance and assuring business continuity. To make that operational, it actually falls into the ARG in two sections, one having to do with purchase materials and in the another, another section having to do with contracted services. And essentially, when you read through the bullets that fall under each of those sections in the ARG, it goes to appropriate monitoring of suppliers and assessing those suppliers from the standpoint of their ability to supply and, uh, and not suffer from uh, issues related to business continuity. So hopefully you can get a sense of that. And uh, I don't feel that these additional retailer requirements are onerous, frankly, to business practice. So that gives you a flavor for how the standard is structured and how it sits, the ARG must sit alongside the structure and how it lines up with the, uh, with the CFR and the regulations. Now, if we were to take a step back from the standard and take a look at, you know, what are the areas of emphasis? What's perhaps unique, different? I've highlighted those from my own read, my own interpretation of those having been involved. And I've got 10 points to, to share briefly with you. Uh, it, this standard references quality objectives and management review responsibility as is covered in ICHP 10. Very important that management review is covered as it would be, as it is in ICH 9001. Training is elaborated, but going to the level of looking for training effectiveness and where investigations um, are zeroing in on potential risk of human error, that those investigations are going beyond human error. Point three, the points in Q10 related to life cycle management are also covered. And these specifically have to do with um, 
product discontinuation, changes in product ownership, uh, topics related to um, tech transfer, for instance. Those are built into this standard or into the associated ARG section. Risk management principles are also very important and covered in a number of different places across the standard. Specifically, where there are multi-product facilities, there are risk assessments related to cross-contamination risk, as an example. Risk assessment is part of the quality unit's responsibility, uh, part of management review, part of change control. So it appears in a number of areas, part of CAPA, for instance. Uh, risk management appears in a number of different areas of the standard, as you would expect, uh, given the way in which we operate today. There's a lot of emphasis, point five, there's a lot of emphasis on the state of the facility and maintenance activities. Under documentation, the section related to documentation specifically calls out data integrity risk. And if you go through the standard, you'd see that data integrity risk appears in a number of places. It appears under documentation and it appears under laboratory controls and appears um, under management review. So there are a number of areas where data integrity risk is expected and would be audited. Auditors would be applying those, those, um, those elements in their audit. Supplier and contract services are proactively managed. This is something to bear in mind. Specific bullets associated with that in the AIG. Validation, both from process and cleaning validation standpoint, is well covered. Internal audit program requirements are quite well covered. And aligned with ICH uh, 9001, the section clause on improvement, uh, goes into detail around a CAPA program that should exist at sites and uh, periodic management reviews, for instance, and there are a few other clauses under improvement that are worthy to uh, keep in mind and take a look at. So hopefully it gives you sort of a, a step back and a big picture as to the areas of focus for the standard. Now I'd like to say a few words to uh, cover the certification process and some next steps for retailers and manufacturers. So how does the certification process work? Well, it starts with a self-assessment, which could be done um, it's a self-assessment of the manufacturer for compliance to the standard in ARG. It could be done by the manufacturer themselves uh, by reviewing the standard and doing a gap assessment, or it could be done by a third party. For instance, NSF would do it. It would be done apart from certification. It must be done apart from certification, uh, but NSF and our consulting arm could undertake that sort of an assessment. There would be an application for certification to assure that the scope and the appropriate standard is selected for certification. Then there is a cycle of uh, or phase of audit planning and execution and reporting. And the outcome of that report would typically be a set of findings that would be subject to technical review by the certification body. And ultimately, a rating would be assigned. As I mentioned earlier, a rating on the basis of A, B, and C, or D based on the number of findings and their severity. At this point, the report goes to the manufacturer and a corrective action plan is put together. And based on the body of data, both the application, the report and its findings and the corrective action plan, the certification decision is reached. And a certificate is issued. The certificate is valid for 12 months. And I should emphasize that the certification decision is made by the CB, the certification body, and the GMA is not involved 
in that activity. There are two types of audits. There's a certification audit and a monitoring audit. The certification audit is described in this flow sheet. The monitoring audit is typically that which is done to confirm whether or not corrective action has been taken and whether or not those actions are closed. Now, that can be done virtually or it can be done on site. All this is specified in the process section of the standard. So next steps and recommendations. If you're a retailer, we encourage you to encourage your suppliers to obtain CGMP certification against this OTC standard. We also encourage you to learn about the GRMA, participate, and evaluate the effectiveness of this approach to satisfy your vendor oversight. It would be expected that once confidence is gained, you could rely on the GRMA and this scheme, this um, certification scheme, for supplier assurance. There may be exceptions, such as when you're evaluating a manufacturer for a new product, due diligence audits, for instance. But appropriately, if suppliers earn a grading of A, B, perhaps even C, you would consider them to be meeting the standard or substantially meeting the standard and to be an acceptable level. And that would preclude the need to do um, your own audits as a retailer or to send those off to a third party to conduct, that they would be done by the CBs in accordance with the scheme. Lastly, we encourage you to join the GRMA, stay involved, provide feedback, and to help a service or help the GMA service um, and stakeholders and to keep this standard and these standards current. If you're an OTC manufacturer, we encourage you to complete the gap assessment against the standard, uh, whether you do it internally or by third party. Uh, once you feel that you're in a sufficiently um, compliant level, select an accredited certification body and then obtain certification using that accredited certification body. And then we encourage you to join the GRMA, stay involved, provide feedback, and essentially assure that this whole process is working. So that essentially concludes the webinar. I'm providing here some contacts. The head of our uh, certification activity, David Trosen, um, Maxine Fritz, who leads the consulting activity for NSF Health Sciences, myself, my contact details are there as well. You can see that this web page is available. Perhaps you've gone to it while on this call. The, uh, there is a, a login section for GRMA members. So hopefully this has been helpful to you. I really appreciate the time that you've taken, so thank you for attending. I'd like you to uh, feel free to send some questions in, which we'll do our best to answer. A few questions have been submitted. Um, Question here, how long is the certification audit? And, well, this is a, a standard question. Very good. It's, the, uh, it's appropriate to think of uh, standard certification audit taking approximately three days, but it really depends on the complexity of the site, the size of the site, um, and the, uh, the history of that site. But typically three days is a good measure for a certification audit. A monitoring audit uh, could be done in a much shorter time frame, uh, typically a day, perhaps even less, because it's really focused on reviewing nonconformances. So thank you for that question. We're essentially out of time. There's another question here related to uh, uh, can you explain a little more about how auditors are trained? Well, this is, takes a little bit more time to answer. Uh, I can say that it really will come down to the certification bodies to assure that their auditors are appropriately trained. It's very important that this be done super well. Uh, they must be experienced in order to conduct these audits. 
They have to be trained in this scheme and with the standard. They must obviously be familiar with the OTC regulations. And, um, and then there will be a period of assessment, essentially supervised audits to ensure that they're applying the scheme appropriately and the standard appropriately. So hopefully that answers that particular question. There's some references that I'd like to at least leave you with. If you wish to obtain the standard, there's a, a link here. And if you wish to learn more about some of our services at NSFL Sciences, uh, there's a link here, but obviously you could send me or my colleagues an email. We'd be happy to, to discuss your potential needs. So again, thank you for joining. Hopefully this has been helpful, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks very much.